Today on the podcast, in the beginning, how to write a first line. If instead you would like to read about the philosophy and mechanics of writing endings, please go to jenfrankel.com slash posts and scroll down to something appropriately and slightly naughtily titled Climaxes. For starters, stay tuned. Opening pleasantries with a pretty room, done over for comfort, played in rows, made in absence of its owner, allow her the satisfaction of kicking her worn boots to the corner, so clever spills out and about around her socks, in a rose pile, like clover in a springtime field. Hello and welcome to the second season of the Jeffers Podcast, or if you're in a not-safe-for-work-be-damned environment, Jen Frankel reads random shit. I am Jen Frankel, purveyor of said random shit, and that was the beginning of my poem, Negotiation. You'll get to hear the rest of it at the end of the episode, but not now, because this episode is about beginnings openings, how to find them, how to proceed from them, and how to go back and start all over again. On this podcast, I look at writing via form and function from the perspective of someone who does it a lot. I investigate different kinds of writing with commentary, words of wisdom from other writers, and examples drawn from my own work. And who am I, you say? I'm a author, poet, lyricist, and screenwriter who knows it can be daunting to have an idea and not be sure how to get it out into the world. So this season, I'll be bringing you something new and exciting, monthly chats with other authors on the subject we discuss in the main episode. I like to call these edition editions. Try saying that 10 times fast. In the first edition, I'll talk to writer Kit Davin, whose Zinnesee series is a sci-fi fantasy journey with Ule, a member of a race that creates planets, who gets trapped on one of her creations. She writes in multiple genres, and I even managed to coerce her into co-starring in my short film, Sydney. But that's for later. For now, let's go back to the beginning. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. Even if you don't know what it's from, you probably recognize at least some of that famous opening paragraph. It's A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens, in case you don't know and want to. A good opening line, or paragraph, can grab your reader's attention and help them commit to reading the rest of what you have to say. A marketer will tell you you have a very short time to engage your audience, and you have to remember that as a writer and not take openings for granted. What makes a good first line? Well, first of all, it should be yours, your voice, your tone, your world. There's nothing worse than a cliché to start a piece of writing. 
for an example of that, think of the classic, It was a dark and stormy night. This one is so hackneyed that there have been contests based on it. Now, not that there was anything particularly wrong with that opening the first time someone used it. I think. I can't say I've read much by the English author Edward Bulwer-Lytton, where it was the opening sentence of his 1830 novel Paul Clifford. That's how long that line has been around, and it's far past its best before date. But how about this from Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice? It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Not to mention Pride and Prejudice and zombies. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a zombie in possession of brains must be in want of more brains. I personally love the opening to Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, which shows off his signature dark humor. It was a pleasure to burn. Or look at something evocative and compellingly off-putting, like this from George Orwell's 1984. It was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking 13. Some openings, like, well, several of Dickens, are so ubiquitous in culture that you might not even realize they're from a book. Call me Ishmael. I am the Invisible Man. Happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Melville, with that call me Ishmael, does something that can be very effective, addressing the reader right away as the narrator of the book. Of course, this only works if you're writing in first person. If you mean to strike a whimsical tone, perhaps, or tell the reader there's something curious going on, you might take a tact like C.S. Lewis did in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, where he opens with, there was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. I love that. <laughs> so there are a few different approaches you can try to spark the perfect line for yourself. First, try to start at a place where there is movement. This can mean starting in the middle of a scene or at a moment of tension or drama. Think about how movies like to throw you into the middle of the action. This works particularly if you're writing a piece that has a cinematic feel, like a thriller or adventure story. But if that doesn't work for you, try what I like to call the foreshadow or back to the future opening. There's a great example of this in Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude. Many years later, as he faced the firing squad, Colonel Aureliano Buendia was to remember that distant afternoon when his father took him to discover ice. Now, this is a technique you should probably use judiciously, or you can probably see how the reader might feel manipulated rather than informed. And even further down that path, some writers choose to break that fourth wall separating you and them and speak directly to you. Like this, for example. You don't know about me without you have read a book by the name of The Adventures of Tom Sawyer, but that ain't no matter. Mark Twain. Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. Or even more exotically, you are about to begin reading Italo Calvino's new novel, If on a Winter's Night a Traveler. Italo Calvino, If on a Winter's Night a Traveler. Now that kind of thing, as you can imagine, could work for you or against you. Italo Calvino might get away with it, sort of, but for my taste, it's a little forced and pretentious. I don't think I could get away with it is what I mean. 
Besides, I read books to escape, not to be reminded that I'm, you know, reading a book. I'm not even going to touch James Joyce's first lines because, well, basically you have to have been him to have written any of them. I do, however, encourage you to look them up. But probably the best technique of all for finding the perfect first line is, well, don't sweat it. Very few first drafts even contain the eventual first line of the book. And if they do, it's likely not to be the first line you've written. Often when I'm doing my first big substance edit on something, the first thing I'll do is look at the start of the piece to see if I can actually excise the first paragraph altogether, or even a few of them. This is because we tend to warm up as we write, and those opening pages can be like stretching your muscles before a run. They're essential, but they're not the main event. But back to me. I find beginnings all over the place. I find them on buses and subways and cafes and in the bath. I like to keep a notebook with me at all times in case one comes and I'm afraid it will get away. But I change beginnings just as easily. And that is something you will probably just have to live with. It's always a good start to get your first line down on paper or into a document file, but don't sweat it too much. The best opening lines sometimes assert themselves long after you've finished your first, or many, drafts. For an example, here's my original first line for a short story I'm working on called Memories of Miss Mindy Tulane. When Miss Mindy Tulane wanted to give the third graders a thrill during one of her more dread-filled readings in the library atrium, she would point to her left eye and tell them, This is the eye I see ghosts with. Not bad, right? And it was this line that grabbed the editor that's interested in it for an anthology. But after discussing the story with Kit Davin, one of my favorite editing swap meet friends, she made the suggestion that I bring Mindy's line into the present to up the stakes and the immediacy of that statement. I agreed to the challenge, and now the first paragraph reads like this. This is the eye I see ghosts with, said Miss Mindy Tulane, war veteran and sometime librarian, pointing to the left one, yellow bright but unseeing. What do you think? More immediate, more urgent? It also sets the tone well, giving the reader the impression that this is an interesting woman and that the story might go into dark and unexpected places. It tells you that this is a story with a potential supernatural aspect and gives you a hint of the world and the future. Here's another opening. This one to the first draft of my novel, The Last Rite. For the longest time, this was the opening line. Maggie Stewart was flying again. Now I liked that line. And it still exists, but now it comes after not just one, but two prologues. The actual first lines of the book are now, laughing, he followed her through the shadows of the forest. She was like a sylph, glints of the white of her pleated sheath and the gold of her hair his only guide in the dense foliage. Unshod, she ran as silent as a deer. Okay, to be honest, I don't think that's an improvement. In fact, I'd have to say I'm a bit ambivalent about it, and that's not how you want a reader to feel about the introduction to something that's taken you so many hours of writing, editing, proofing, and promoting as a novel. I actually found, in preparing for this episode, an even older opening line from the handwritten manuscript of the last rite that I started in my middle teens. It is nighttime, and Maggie Stewart was flying again. 
What makes this discovery even more interesting for me is that what follows is also not the same as in the first published edition of the book. And even more compelling for me, I like it better. So that begs the question, how do you know you've got it right? Or could you just conceivably keep changing your opening lines forever? Well, of, co of course you can. But one thing you must learn as a writer is when to stop. Because a feeling you've got it exactly right and you'll fight to the death for your gorgeous prose is not just counterproductive, it might be delusional. It's important to stop if you feel you're rewriting and rewriting and never getting any further than the first few pages because they're not quite perfect. But it's just as deadly to believe that every word you write is sacrosanct. You might very well believe that, but trust me, you'll be missing out on the possibility it could be even better. Now that brings me to getting past your first line and onto the rest of your manuscript. At some point, you really do have to turn the page, literally or metaphorically, and write the whole story. I've found that the biggest reason people linger over their first line or page is insecurity, the fear that they won't be able to finish what they started. Now, here's the comfort I can give you on that score. And it won't sound like comfort, but bear with me. You might not finish, but you might. And you might not, but you might finish on your second try or your third. You might never finish. But the one thing that will guarantee that you never do is to stay on the first line forever. In that case, you're better off developing a fondness for flash fiction or you know, write a series of 100 first lines and call it a freeform novel. Incidentally, something else I discovered going back to that earliest of early drafts. First, it was literally written on three-ring binder paper in longhand, and the handwriting was all um, girly and loopy, unlike my jagged, illegible scroll now. But... There was a power in that early organic flow that was missing from the rather labored rewrite years later. In those days, I would just write until I ran out of steam, until I had to stop because I had no idea where to go next. I didn't criticize, I didn't overthink. What I was thinking about were the implications of what I had just put down on paper and where that action or thought or bit of dialogue could take me next. Now, although I usually start with some kind of idea of the shape of the story, that kind of organic writing has the potential to unlock story ideas that you didn't know you had until that very moment. For example, with the first appearance of Maggie in The Last Rite, this is what made it to print. Maggie Stewart is flying again, far above the streetlights and night traffic. Below, Toronto is laid out like a Mondrian painting, all blocks and straight lines. She banks and glides, savoring the bite of the cool spring air, and flies west, deep into the suburbs, towards home. She swoops lower, letting her fingertips brush the young leaves of the apple trees, their white blossoms luminous in the semi-dark, dodging the branches with a giddy joy at her own freedom. Over to her left, Maggie glimpses the tarred roof and yellow bricks of her own school, Westbrook Elementary, and banks toward it through the canopy of trees. Then, 
with a strange transition of the sort that can only seem logical in dreams. She is walking through the subdivision, her footsteps hollow on the asphalt. Although she is still in her nightclothes, it is day now, and she knows she is going home after school. It is so quiet her ears buzz. It seems like she must be the only person in the whole world. And retrospect, a little blah. It probably didn't help that this rewrite happened while I was making an even more major change, putting the entire novel in first person where it had been in third before. I chose to keep the dream sequences that pepper the book in third person to keep a little distance there between the eye of Maggie's waking life and her dream self, and also because I was already mixing first and third person narratives throughout. Not everything happened right in front of my gal, in other words. But here's that earlier draft done when I was just 16. It has a lot more flow and power, but I was unwilling to accept at the point that I did the rewrite that my younger self could possibly have had some edge on the current me stylistically. Well, live and learn. Yeah, humility, that is. Nighttime, and Maggie Stewart was flying again. It wasn't the first time she had done that, not by a long shot, but she should have known there was something different about this dream right from the start. For one thing, it was so vivid. Also, she seemed to be able to choose her own path through the heady air, or at the very least believed she could. Maybe it only felt that way because she had been reading up on lucid dreaming in the past week, but didn't the fact she remembered the book as she flew prove something? She was above Westbrook, high enough to see the serpentine curve of its streets meant to boggle traffic over the canopy of twenty-year foliage, high above the park behind her own school. And that was where everything changed. She banked and glided, savoring the bite of the cool spring air and flew north, away from the city and deeper into the suburbs. Swooping lower, she let her fingertips brush the young leaves of the apple trees, their white blossoms luminous in the semi-dark. She saw the tarred roof of the elementary school over to her left and swept straight down through the canopy of trees. And suddenly, she felt her nightgown catch on the branches and she was falling. I even like the past tense better than the present tense of the new draft. So, while the opening of the section changed only a little, you can see the power of not sweating the first line and heading straight from it into the meat of the subject matter. But the point is... A first line can always change. In my case, I'm considering changing one back even though it's been in print for over 10 years. Beginnings, to sum up, are important. But don't let the gravity of an opening line dissuade you from the most important part of the writing. Getting that first draft finished. I want to end today with the ending of how I began. This is the whole poem, Negotiation. I hope you'll find it inspiring and help you face the unfamiliar with a, a bit of bravery, a bit of excitement, and a dash of style. Negotiation. Opening pleasantries with a pretty room done over for comfort, played in rows made in the absence of its owner, allow her the satisfaction of kicking her worn boots to the corner so clever spills out and about her socks. In rose pile, like clover in a springtime field. 
When last did she reach to her reclining side and to the amazement of, well, mostly herself, exclaim on four perfect leaves, when boundary between what is and what could be left themselves for the definition of her elders, on powders of potent wonder, she could sell them and buy this pretty room. There is knowledge in the world. She has had more than her fair share of that, she is sure, if only it had come better packaged, with more of the instructions which seem simple to everyone but her. But she has special powers, and perhaps that is compensation. She has come home. She wants to travel further than any woman before her, farther than any woman has wanted. She needs no road map. The clever is enough. She'll spill it behind her like fine white pebbles from a boy's fingers. If it was enough to save him from the woods, surely she can be secure and know that if she loses her way, the way back at least is clear. Opening pleasantries. She bows, knowing the room will not care that her socks are dirty and do not match. That's all for this episode, but watch for my discussion with author Kit Davin coming soon. We'll chat about opening lines and how to get on with your story, which is what really matters. Next time, I'm going to talk about monologues, those wonderful pieces of text in a play or a film where one of the characters gets all chatty and basically takes over all the talk for a while. I'll look at some famous ones and share some of my own. The episode is tentatively titled, The Play's The Thing, in which some guy or gal suddenly steps out and starts talking about something and no one else can get a word in edgewise. Or, you know, that might change. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and rate on your favorite podcast app. Positive reviews help independent broadcasters like you would not believe. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jen Frankel and Instagram at Jen Frankel Author at jenfrankel.com, and you can also find me all over the place on Facebook. Buy The Last Rite and its sequel, The Red Ring, at Amazon and Kindle, along with my other novels, and tune in on Tuesdays to thatchannel.com, where I co-host the daytime talk show, Liquid Lunch. Thank you for spending some time with me. Keep reading, writing, and sharing your work, and I'll see you next time on Jen Frankel Reads Random Shit. The Jeffers Podcast is written and engineered by Jen Frankel, all music copyright Zeno Franco. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode, and please tune in for the Kit Davin edition edition. Edition, 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 edition. Uh,